0: Welcome to The Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, President of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, listeners and friends to the Global Marketing Show. I am so happy to have you here. As you know, we are sponsored by Rapport International, or maybe you don't know, so I'm informing you. Rapport International connects you to anyone, anywhere in the world, no matter the language, through high quality translation and interpretation. So, Rapora likes to share tidbits. And so I got a tidbit for you here today. A funny one that they put out recently was in a Bangkok tailor's business. And it read, drop your trousers here for best results.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a
0: good one. So <laughs> the words work. But the meaning, it doesn't yeah. accurately come across. And that's yeah. what's so important with translation. It's not <laughs> the words. It's not automated. It's it's knowing when you're saying something that could be embarrassing. Right. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, who's already been laughing, Christian Klepp. He's the co-founder and director of engagement at Einblick Consulting based yep. in Toronto, Canada. He's the third culture kid as he's lived in Austria, Australia, the Philippines, Singapore, Germany, and China before relocating to Canada. So Christian, welcome.
1: Thank you, Wendy. It's a pleasure to be on your show. And what a way to break the ice with that little anecdote.
0: (laughs) Drop your trousers here. So (laughs) many of those
1: stories, so many of those. And I think we had that conversation when you were a guest on my podcast about like how things can get lost in translation.
0: Oh, they absolutely can. And so, you know, speaking about lost in translation, why don't you tell our listeners what a third culture kid is? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's the textbook definition, but the one that I like to go with is uh, somebody that lives and grows up in a country or in a place that is not their home country, right? And if they're like living in a place where, you know, the parents also don't originate from that home country, and that for me is a third culture kid. So in, in my case, that would have been probably places like China. Singapore, yeah, for example, yeah because I am from a multicultural background, as I might have mentioned previously, right like because my late father is from Austria and my mother's from the Philippines, right, but I did have the opportunity to grow up in a lot of these different countries, and it's helped shape my view and perspective of the world as it were,
0: yeah, so where yeah. did where were you born and where did you mostly grow up?
1: Oof. okay, so I was born in Austria, right, uh-huh and i spent my you could say the, my formative years so that was all up until high school i lived in the philippines and i left when i was 18 and i went to university in singapore and after graduating from university in singapore i went to work in germany for 2 years and that was really also just to get my german on par with my english which i i can say with confidence i managed to achieve and I might have shared this story with you previously, but an old family friend of ours in Munich, was he was the gentleman that actually convinced me to move out to Shanghai, China all those many years ago, right? And I moved to Shanghai in August 2004, and I told myself I'd stay for a year. And then it was 2005. Then I said, okay, I'll stay another year. And then eventually it got to five or six years, and I just stopped counting. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So that must've been quite an experience. Third culture kid. I've also heard it called second culture kid. And then most recently I heard it called culturally confused.
1: (laughs) There is certainly a bit of that, I will admit, right? There is a bit of like, you know, you go through these, I guess these motions or these stages where you, and I I certainly went through it personally, where you ask yourself, okay, well, where do I really belong? Or I think the famous question is where is home for you? Right? Right. Yes, And I think the answer to that is, I believe this is a North American saying, but like home is where I hang up my hat, right? Yeah. So in that case, like for me right now, uh, Toronto is my home.
0: Right? Yes.
1: If you ask me like where I was born versus where I consider home, I mean, those are two completely different stories. But I think it's also been so interesting that I've been able to, or had this opportunity to absorb and immerse myself in these different cultures and that kind of is also reflected in the way I talk. I've been told, like, I had, a, I had a conversation with a gentleman in South Africa this morning, and I did catch myself saying content schedule instead of schedule, right? <laughs> it's just all these, like, little nuances, because as I was going to school in Singapore, for example, they always reminded me not to use American English. Right. And to use the British spelling instead, and to say lift instead of elevator, and it's a lorry and not a truck and et cetera. Et cetera and it's half past six, and you can't do that. Right. And <laughs> so on and so forth. And then, you know, now I'm here in Canada, where it's a bit of a mixed bag too, but they tend to sound a little bit more like sorry, Canada, but a little bit more like Americans. And people did have a good laugh, like when they hear me speak English, or I refer to like, I think it was a baby trolley, and I refer to it as a pram, right? <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: Now, it's so true. When you're a third culture kid, you've got to be able to adapt your language to fit in. You don't have to, you learn to adapt to fit in more easily. Yeah. So you've taken this international background and you've really wrapped it into doing global work. So tell me a little bit about Eindlich Consulting and what you do.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to have me on your show. And secondly, it's really, well, for starters, the word Einblick is actually the German word, which means insight, right? And that's what we hope to deliver to clients. And what we really do is it's a lot of consulting work primarily in the branding and marketing space for B2B. And narrowing that down even further, it's for companies that are in the B2B tech space. So like, you know, uh, we're talking about, about like You know, companies that develop software that other companies will then use for product development, for example. And also companies that are in the professional space, professional services space, right? So what is it exactly that we help them to do after that whole explanation? We help them to find what their unique advantage is. And, you know, a lot of these companies tend to compete in very noisy markets, very crowded markets, where a lot of companies are selling similar products or services so how do you stand out amidst that sea of noise and that's what we help them to find and identify through uh, customer research through strategic brand positioning and through also content development
0: were you doing um, this in shanghai
1: i was doing that in shanghai as well and i'm doing it now in toronto also and i did tell you about this in our previous conversation we found ourselves especially in the past year in this unique position here in canada where we are helping Chinese-speaking clients who are venturing into the North American market and want to do business here. And it's interesting how that's come full circle now. What I mean by that is because I spent many years in China helping foreign companies that wanted to enter the China market who weren't quite familiar with the dynamics of that ecosystem. And it was my or my company's, my former company's responsibility to help navigate them through all of that, right? So it's a consultative role. And it's interesting how that's, that's happening now with the reverse, right? With Chinese companies coming to the US and Canada wanting to do business. But again, there's that lack of familiarity of how things operate on the ground. And I'm not just okay, talking wait, about wait, the wait, language.
0: Wait. There right? is so much in there. Yeah. Let's, let's unpack sure. this. Okay, sure. so first you were working yeah. with bringing foreign companies or u.s companies into china so can you tell me about a story where a company had challenges or where they Mm -hmm. made mistakes entering in because they didn't understand the language and culture
1: absolutely and thanks for jumping in there because it is a handful right like it is a lot to absorb right but oh and there's so much
0: good meat in there yeah
1: absolutely absolutely um I mean, I'm gonna say that more often than not, it, it's not one company in particular. But what we found were the biggest challenges, and I'm talking about like they could have been Fortune 500 companies, multinational corporations, or smaller sized businesses that wanted to enter the China market. I think one of the biggest issues that we saw with all of them was this whole attitude of like, well, what got us here will uh, what got us here will get us there. Right. Mm-hmm. So and we dealt with companies that were from the United States, companies from Australia, companies from the different European countries who said, well, this was the approach and the marketing campaign, which was so successful in our home country. And we tested it out in Latin America and we tested it out in other European countries. Let's just take that playbook and replicate that success in China. And guess what? Then they got to China and they realized they could take that playbook and just chuck it out the window.
0: You right. Bring it down into one story for me. You don't have to say the yeah. company name, but, Absolutely. you know, like an industry, because I like to really pull that out and make it tangible.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. OK, so. I'll give you an example of a company, I won't say the name, but a company that was dealing in medical technology, so medical devices, as it were, right? And these medical devices were, it was a non-invasive way to measure your blood sugar, right? Okay. So this obviously is pretty interesting and very relevant technology. And there's a lot, there's, there is certainly a market out there that stands to benefit from that kind of product, right? And they had a mind to enter the China market and to expand their business there because the healthcare sector in China I'm just going to say in a very diplomatic way that there is room for improvement, okay? And they showed us this product and they showed us what worked when they rolled this out in the European markets and even in South America. Brazil was one of their biggest markets. And they said that the way that they sold it in these countries, and this is very B2B, they would go to the clinics and the doctors would promote this product, right? So they would have their marketing assets there, their marketing materials, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's how they would use that as a channel, they would use that as a platform to sell that product. But then when they came to China, what they realized is, number one, they can't go at this on their own, right? They need somebody on the ground. And I'm not necessarily talking about they need to hire a Chinese employee that, that's a given, but they need a Chinese partner that can navigate through the healthcare system because the healthcare system is it's not very transparent, if I'm going to just pull it lightly, number one. Number two is they weren't aware of the strict regulations within the healthcare sector in China. So what do I mean by that? And if we're going to talk about like something actionable, doctors in China are not allowed to promote someone else's products or pharma Anything of that nature in their clinics—it's just not allowed, right? If you go to a clinic, a doctor's clinic in China, you will not see advertising of any products, right? So that was one impediment that they had. So could there.
0: they? Can, mm. How did they prescribe then?
1: I mean, they can prescribe a medication, but they can't have the brands, you know, like a poster uh-huh. or that, anything of that nature. The assets in their in their clinic, right? That's not right. allowed. So they found that out, that that was one impediment, right? So what they then realized is the only way that they were going to be able to sell to the doctors is to go through the hospital. But to sell to the hospital, you have to know somebody who is in the procurement department of the hospital. And the procurement department will rely on the recommendations and the requests of the doctors. So I say all of that to imply that they had to use a different approach. I'm not saying that it was impossible to sell their product. It was possible. They just had to rethink and essentially reinvent their approach, right? They couldn't replicate what they did in other countries because it's just not applicable in China.
0: So they had to do a two-prong approach where they had to get in front of the doctors to influence them, but for the doctors to actually move the market they had to be talking to the procurement so you had to build it was more of a relationship building behind the scenes not direct Um, yeah which is more aligned with traditional culture yeah so
1: that is one approach right which highlights the difference right another approach and we'll get to the language part in a second because it's also part of what this show is about right but another approach which they had to rethink and use in the china market was tapping into a different digital ecosystem. And and we can talk about that in a second, right? But that means that they had, because China, for those of you that didn't know that, I mean, like it it almost seems obvious, but China has the largest population in terms of internet users in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it was over a billion, if I'm not mistaken. And out of that billion, and this is information that I pulled out of the China government ministry website, More than 90% of these internet users are cell phone users. What does that mean? That means that you have to tap into mobile marketing. That means that you have to tap into social media. Why do I say social media? Because Chinese consumers, whether you're talking about B2B or B2C, they are consuming content on social media channels that are put out not just by official accounts, but also by what they call KOLs, which is their version of influencers or micro-influencers. KOL stands for key opinion leaders. So what does that mean going back to this client's context? That you had to team up with somebody that was either someone in the healthcare sector that people follow, somebody that's influential that doctors follow, right? And then they put out these posts. Not necessarily promotional, but more informative. And then by the way, you you can slip in something about the product there. So it's... It's using this different approach, right, to also expand their presence and their products within this new market.
0: So there were almost, because in the United States, there's Mm -hmm. more regulations on what direct marketing medical devices and pharmaceuticals can do to Mm -hmm. the consumer. But in China, you could leverage those platforms more.
1: You could leverage those platforms more, but there are regulations, right? You can't like be too hard sell, too promotional. There's also laws in place about the type of wording and terminology that you are not allowed to use. For instance, you are not allowed to make claims like the number one product, the best. You are not allowed to... Use this language, which you see in the West sometimes, like this is our product and this is brand X. You are not allowed to use that kind of comparison in China, for instance, in your marketing, right?
0: Okay. And that's... Mm the number one best like you can't do that with medical device marketing here in the United States mm, you have to back yeah. it up with facts correct. but i but it's much more limited and you have yeah. to give all the disclosures of what the side effects could be so it's still heavily regulated yes but not as much as that kind of education that you'd see online
1: correct correct huh. so that was interesting um, so sorry so that was just one difference right but yeah. i would say that the second most significant difference and you will appreciate this is the language and the cultural barrier right
0: yes do tell me more
1: so things clearly get lost in translation i mean let's just put it this way you cannot implement a marketing campaign in china if your material is not in chinese right you can pretty much forget about it it needs to be in Chinese. It needs to be a proper translation. Do not rely on machine translation. And we've had this conversation before. It also needs to be checked by somebody who is a native Chinese speaker. And when I say native Chinese speaker, I'm not talking about somebody from Singapore or Malaysia or Taiwan that speaks Mandarin. It needs to be somebody from mainland China. Right. Because I've had that experience before where something was translated by a Singaporean Chinese, and the nuances are not the same. The right. terminology or the way they express themselves is not the same. Right? right? And I think this is also another mistake. I mean, this is like a nice little segue into the next mistake or misconception. A lot of companies out there look at China as one country, one mm. country, one market. And that's a mistake because China, yes, it is one country. But it's a country that is so diverse. It has so many regions. It has so many areas that are highly developed. And it has areas which are in the process of being highly developed. And there are areas which are still under development, right? They even go as far as to segment these markets by calling them tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. I think it goes all the way down to six, right? So if you're looking at places like Shanghai... Beijing, Guangzhou, those are tier one cities, for example. So, so
0: in the U.S., we don't look at by how much the geography is developed. We look mm. at it as where it's based, like northeast, yeah. southwest, northwest. Like we'd segment more that way than how developed. I don't know. Maybe there's yeah. other people. I guess um, if you're harvester tractors, mm. you segment that way. Well,
1: but. I, I suppose it's difficult to compare it that way, Wendy, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, China, you know, we mustn't forget, I think they've been industrialized now for, I think, just a little over 30 years, right? Yeah. They've, they've gotten to that level within such a short time, which I mean, for me, is absolutely mind blowing when you think about it, right? Oh, How absolutely. Hundreds of millions of people went from having nothing to like having an actual, like, you know, a standard of living and, and what have you. But what I bring up that point to say that the places or the areas in China that developed so quickly tended to be the larger cities along the eastern coast of the country, right? So if you see the major cities, they're all along the coast, right? Along Hmm. the eastern part, right? And the further west you go in China, that tends to be like either still under development or, or not developed, right? And the reason why they segment the country that way is because there are different standards in terms of the 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 quality of life and the living standard you know if you're living in a place like shanghai or beijing compared to somewhere out in western china for instance right the standard of living is different the level of income is different the level of disposable income is not the same right people in shanghai are able to afford much much more than their Mm -hmm. counterparts in other parts of the country more towards the western regions right so that's the reason why you have to take it into account that way, right? But if we're going back to the linguistic point of view, I mean, certainly just for the reference of listeners out there that it's Mandarin or Putonghua, which is the lingua franca of the entire country. So that's the official language of China. That being said, and all the major communication and everything that you see print and digital is in that language. That being said, there are hundreds of dialects, right? Right hundreds of dialects which in my personal opinion are languages in their own rights right for instance i think one that maybe americans are a bit more accustomed to is the cantonese dialect right mm-hmm. and that tends to be spoken by people that are from southern china um uh, traditionally they came from hong kong but now it's obviously like you know other parts of china but even shanghai has its own dialect shanghainese it's perhaps one of the most <laughs> difficult languages i've i've ever heard right in terms of like learning it because it's spoken at a very rapid speed
0: right yeah and what's so Mm -hmm. interesting to me about the hundreds of dialects and we run into this a lot when people are asking for a Chinese translation Mm -hmm. is that Mandarin is a spoken language and the dialects are spoken language but there's one form of written Chinese in China so when I was in the marketplace Mm -hmm. and I didn't understand people would go to their palm and use their other finger to try to to write something out, you know, to give you a price for something. And it didn't help. But they're so Mm. used to so many people speaking different languages, but sharing a written language that they really could communicate that way.
1: Exactly. And, you know, like every country, I mean, the United States has it too. There's regional variations of the same language. There are accents, depending on which part of the country you're talking about. And it's the same in China. Right. Like for me, I got so used to the way Shanghainese people spoke Mandarin that if I suddenly met somebody from northern China or from Beijing and they started speaking Mandarin, once in a while, I'd have to ask them to repeat what they said. Right. Right. Because they just I'll, I'll give you an example. So in Mandarin, if you want to if you want to ask somebody, can you please repeat what you said? You say you uh, can it. Right. But if it's somebody from Beijing or Northern China, they'd say, <laughs> Right? Very and it's different. the same thing. It's a, just a different way of saying it.
0: Yeah. Right? yeah.
1: Like, or for example, m- my favorite one is like, you know, if you step into a, in, into a taxi and they want to ask you where you're going, they say, <laughs> Right? But in Beijing, they'd say, <laughs> Right? Right? <laughs> Means the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing,
1: yeah. and these are things that you have to be mindful of, and especially also with you know with translations. And I think this could probably be a completely different conversation, but brand naming in Chinese.
0: Oh yes, please that's, talk about that. We've done some brand name research, and it's yeah. been fascinating. So yeah, and we do tons. Our Report International does tons of tidbits about brand name uh, groups I, I, So yeah, tell me.
1: I bet, and I mean, you know, this is applicable. I think you know for all languages that. That don't, that don't use a romanized alphabet. I mean, like, you know, you can say the same thing maybe in, even in Japanese and Korean, for instance, right? But I'm, I'm just going to talk about my experience with Chinese naming because that's what, you know, that's where I spent a lot of time in the past couple of years. But the thing is, if your brand as a foreign company or as a foreign brand coming into China, if your brand does not have a Chinese name, chances are people will generally tend to forget who you are. Or, If you don't have a Chinese name, the media will give you one. Right. And that may or may not be good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, how did Mm. you work with American companies coming in, or, you know, Canadian Mm -hmm. companies or any other Mm -hmm. country, and just, you know, English speaking, to if they're coming in with a brand, how did you help them research what it should be in Chinese?
1: Great question. Unfortunately, it's not a one-sentence answer, I'm going to say, right?
0: Yeah. Because there Mm -hmm. is
1: an incredible amount of uh, research that goes behind that to understand. It's a combination of what the brand stands for, essentially, number one. Number two is what is it about your brand that you wish to communicate to the Chinese customer or target audience? And Mm -hmm. number three, and this is the tricky part, taking those insights and then coming up with a name that reflects the brand's positioning and the brand's value and the benefits that it delivers, but coming up with a name that captures those things while at the same time being culturally sensitive and also a name that will resonate with Chinese customers. Because I'm going to tell you this, and this is short of stating the obvious, right? The Chinese language has so much symbolism and hidden meaning behind it. Yes. Right? Every character can be can mean something else. And characters as if they stand alone can have one meaning. And then if you combine them with other characters, they can have a completely different meaning.
0: Right? So can you give so, us mm. an example of a success, a company that went over and was able to do this nicely and what the name was in English oh, and oh, what it oh, became? Oh, oh.
1: I'll do even better than that. These are not these are not names that I came up with, you know, that we came up with. I mean, these are case studies from China, right? Mm-hmm. I'll do one better, Wendy. I'll I'll tell you one, I'll give you examples of brand names that did really well and also a brand name that, well, wasn't well received. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right?
0: Okay. Because yeah. but let
1: me let, let me just finish up before I give you those examples. Um, once you come up with that Chinese brand name, it needs to be tested. You know, there needs to be a linguistic check to make sure that it resonates with Mandarin speakers. Also, when you're talking about government registration, you have to make sure that the name isn't taken yet either. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a completely different story. And the third one, which a lot I've seen a lot of companies do, like, you know, if you want to go the extra mile, they do a dialect check. Right. Because right. sometimes it might sound great in Mandarin, but in, in Cantonese, it might be a curse. right? Right. So there's that part of it as well. But okay, back to your question. So I'll give you two examples and they're both German brands. They came up with their Chinese names and they were received very well. So there's the German company called Siemens and they do everything, don't they? Right? They're in in a lot of industries. So the Chinese name of Siemens sounds like a phonetic translation, but actually there, there is another meaning behind it. So the Chinese name of Siemens is Xi Men Zi, right? So Xi means West, Men is Gate, and then Zi, the character Zi means Child, right? Yeah. So if you combine those, it almost sounds like you're saying Child of the Western Gate.
0: Oh, right? that's fantastic.
1: Right? It's a. It, yeah. it sounds nice. I mean, like Ximen is like the gate to the west, right? And then Dongmen is the door to the east, right? The gate to the yeah. east. Okay, so that's one. And example. they do
0: a lot of innovation and thinking yes. of new things. So yes. child, so, dependent on how it's taken, yeah. So
1: it has it has a it has a positive connotation, right?
0: Yeah. Um.
1: So one of my personal favorite Chinese names of a Western brand is BMW. Right. So yeah. BMW's Chinese name is. Bao Ma. So Bao, the character Bao, means precious, right? And the character Ma means horse. So if you put them together, it's a precious horse.
0: Horse. <laughs> That's fantastic.
1: Well, it better yes. be that, that 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 thing's expensive, right? So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh that's great. So you told us about a couple of names that worked well. Can you give an example of something that did not work?
1: Okay. Hold on to your sheets here. When Airbnb came up with their Chinese name. Yeah. So I think they they developed this name with all good intentions and the the Chinese name of Airbnb Airbnb is IBING and if I were to translate that into English, it would mean something like it's a, it's coming from a place of love and, you know, welcoming you with love or in our hearts, right? Because the word, the Chinese word, I, means love. However, when they launched that name into the market, a lot of Chinese netizens, so people, you know, people on the social media channels, said that that name didn't really resonate with them. And a lot of them misinterpreted its meaning. Right. And so the reason why is that depending on where you go in China, the second character, no, actually, the the second character is applicable in in, uh, all across China, but the second character, B, could also be implying the female genitalia. Right. And the third character, Ying, can also be interpreted as lust. So if you put those characters together, if you put those characters together, well, it, it you you can see how it could be misinterpreted. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, love I I'm, 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 I'm,
0: lust. Yeah,
1: I'm trying to I'm trying to find a way to like you know diplomatically communicate that. But look, it, it, it wasn't well received. Long story short. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy!
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh. So and and this again is is the reason why you don't rush to come up with a chinese brand name you need to do your research you need to make sure that it's culturally and linguistically appropriate and that it resonates with the market because if you don't do that due diligence this is what can happen
0: so it, we talked about china and adapting in mm-hmm. the country i mean i was so amazed when i was over there a number of years yeah. back because just the transportation system and yes. my mom had a stomach issue and with all the problems with the medical that we were talking about mm-hmm. they gave her you know chinese medicine or herbs that ended up solving what western medicine had not been able to solve yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff. And I know you have some ideas of what we can learn from Chinese companies or learn from people in China. What, mm-hmm. what, what can we learn from them?
1: Oh, wow. Where to begin? We can learn about adaptability, right? If it's one thing that I noticed it, the significant difference between China and the West is their ability to adapt and adapt quickly. There's something, and I always think I mentioned this in our previous conversation, but there's speed as we interpret it in the West, and then there's China speed. And I'll give you an example, right? (laughs) And this, I suppose you can say that this comes with the territory of being in an agency, but we used to get briefings from clients on a Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., and they'd expect us to come back with a full presentation by Monday morning at nine. right? Wow. That's... I mean, that's one example. The other example, I think, which I might have mentioned in our previous conversation, Wendy, I moved to Shanghai in 2004, and I left in 2018. So when I moved there in 2004, Shanghai had two subway lines, right? Line one and line two. And when I left Shanghai in 2018, they had 17 subway lines. (laughs)
0: Let
1: that sink in for a second. They built they built 15 subway lines in a span of like a, a decade right
0: wow
1: never in your wildest dreams would you imagine that kind of undertaking happening in the west within that time frame right <laughs> there's a running joke i don't know about i don't know about you i don't know about where you live but you know here in toronto they just started working on this new subway line extension and the jokes just don't stop people are saying oh They'll finish that when my daughter, who is now four years old, is in college or graduated, <laughs> because that's how long it will take. We've right?
0: been trying to get a bike path through Sudbury since for over 20 <laughs> years, and they're yeah. just starting it now. You're talking a simple bike path to connect two other bike paths.
1: <laughs> right. So definitely, I had to bring up that one about speed and adaptability. And what I mean by adaptability is also, I mean, you know, it's, it's about being open to learning new things and adapting accordingly. I'll tell you this much, Wendy. I mean, I'm not sure about your experience, but I have never lived in a place where I've worked with people that were so eager to learn new languages. Ah. I cannot tell you how many Chinese people I met while I was working in Shanghai that not only spoke passable English but they also spoke Japanese and Korean and French and German and Russian and the list goes on. I had colleagues at the previous agency that would go to night school to learn Korean, right?
0: Fascinating. I wonder what drives that cultural element.
1: I think it's that curiosity, right? It's that curiosity and also that eagerness to learn from other cultures, right?
0: Okay, so there's more of an openness Yes. To other there's cultures?
1: An, there's an openness to other cultures. And I'll tell you this, like I worked, I used to work with Caterpillar was a good client of mine. I worked with them for nine years in the division that not many people know about It's but it's the Marine and Diesel Division. So they would build these massive engines that will go into ocean-going vessels, for instance. And they sent some of their Chinese engineers to be trained in Germany. And these guys came back speaking fluent German.
0: Wow.
1: Right? Huh. So it's not just the the skills and the know-how, of course, because, you know, that's a requirement for their job, but they adopted the, the language, you know, as well.
0: Right, and, right. So, yeah, I didn't know hmm. if it had something to do with the curiosity or whether education and the value of education or the Absolutely. you know interest in international affairs since the opening of the borders, like uh, that. So there's exactly. a lot of things that go into it, but I, I hear you, know, you that just the curiosity be, to learn.
1: It could be a combination yeah. of all of those factors you just mentioned, right? Yeah, because, which is it's
0: a great cultural trait.
1: Which is a great cultural trait. And so there's that. And I think the other one, which I really need to stress on is being open to trying new technologies. And yeah. some people have almost... You know, told me, like, what are you talking about, CRISPR? Well, you know, we're all doing everything online now and doing online shopping and digital payments and all that. I'm like, yeah, but they've been doing that in China for 10 years now.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Right. You know, I we remember were talking... hearing
0: about it in France well before I heard about it in the right. United States. Yeah. You
1: know, it was, I don't know about the United States, but in Canada, it was only because of the pandemic that everybody started talking about e wallets and digital payments.
0: Yeah, yeah. But in
1: Shanghai, people were doing digital payments already back in 2012 or 2013.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: They just have their own version of it. Like, I mean, they don't use Apple Pay, they have their own version, right? There's a form of payment on WeChat that they use, and there's yeah. Alipay, which in Mandarin is called Chufu Bao. But these are all like digital wallets, right? Yeah. So they've been yeah. using that kind of technology already. Right. Yeah. And and it, it starts from there. And there's other things like, you know, you're talking about their transportation system. I mean, they have some of the best transportation systems I've ever oh, encountered. It's
0: flipping amazing to move that the number of people that I saw moving through either. Yeah subways or airports. Yep. Yeah. You know what? Yep. We are coming mm-hmm. to the end of the time and I could just keep going mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. Where can people find you? Then I want to ask for final recommendations and your favorite foreign words. So those are the three things we have to do to wrap up. You, you take it from here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Wendy, thank you again for having me on your show. I really had a blast and I think we could have gone out for another six hours. That's
0: yeah. <laughs> how I always feel talking to you. It'd yeah.
1: Be, thank you. Thank you. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I think that would be... Be a great place to start. So, my handle is Christian Dash Imblick Consulting, and Einblick is spelled E I N B L I C K. Um, you can check out our website at www.imblick.co and also check out our podcast, B2B Marketers on the Mission. And I have the pleasure of interviewing Wendy on my show. And please, if you connect with me on LinkedIn, mention that you listen to this incredible show with Wendy Pease. Right?
0: Yes, and so it's Christian Dash Klepp, which is
1: kleppepp
0: mm-hmm. Dash Einblick. Mm-hmm. Okay, and your website and podcast, fabulous. What about your favorite foreign word? We haven't done that yet.
1: My favorite foreign word. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about foreign word, but I would say I would say a phrase, and I think this phrase served me well as I, you know, as I went out to China, because at first, you know, I was really interested in learning mandarin and immersing myself in the chinese culture but you know in the beginning it seems like it's an insurmountable task and just to put that into context um, i asked my chinese teacher well how many how many characters would i need to know to read a newspaper and she goes about 6 000. and i'm like oh. <laughs> so anyways to answer your question and it's a famous saying from an ancient chinese philosopher called lao Tzu, and mm-hmm. the saying goes kian li do you, which in English means the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step?
0: I love that saying. I had to mm. have a quote to put on a presentation in business school, and I heard there that. And go. I was like, that becomes, you know, I love it. And to hear it in the actual Chinese from Lao Tzu. That's fantastic. So that mm. is perfect. So Christian, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I have found this absolutely fascinating and I know our listeners will too.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So if you found this as entertaining as I did, please give it a five-star rating. I'd really appreciate that because that helps show it to more people that might be interested. And if you know of a business owner who is interested in multicultural marketing or is thinking about expanding into China, certainly reach out to me or to Christian and we can help guide you on best practices and suggestions and even some government and state resources that can help you figure out all the pieces that need to go into it. So thank you so much and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and, of course, on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.